Welcome to Holy Unhappiness, conversations about the expectations we have of what the life of faith will feel like. I'm your host, Amanda Held Opelt, author of the book, Holy Unhappiness, God, Goodness, and the Myth of the Blessed Life. Each week, I'll be speaking with writers, pastors, artists, and friends about the myths we believe about the good life. Together, we'll reimagine what blessing can look like if we are willing to look beyond our culture's definition of happiness and success. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for joining us again today. Uh, On the podcast today, we're going to be talking about calling and faithfulness and vocation. And I'm so, so, so excited to be joined by John Guerra. John is a devotional music singer-songwriter. He's written and produced two devotional music albums, Keeper of Days, and most recently, Ordinary Ways. And he just released his first songwriting masterclass on devotional songwriting, John has also composed music for uh, Terrence Malick's film, A Hidden Life, in 2019, and he's based in Austin, Texas. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation, so stick around. John, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. It's actually just so cool and exciting for me to be able to talk to a fellow songwriter and kind of pick your brain a little bit about what you do. So yeah, thanks thanks for being on. Thanks so much for having me, Amanda. Yeah. Um, so I have to tell you um, about the experience I had when I was uh, reading your bio mm, <laughs> on Spotify. Yes. Um, you 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 write in your bio, you know, just kind of typical bio stuff. Like I've lived in Chicago. I'm in Austin. I like Radiohead. I like Keith Green. Yeah. But then at the end of one of the the paragraphs, you write just the sentence, "I am a Christian." And I read that and I just started to cry. I was Mm. like, why am I crying? Why does this feel emotional to me? And I think it's because like living in the world where that term Christian can be such a pejorative and can Mm. come with a lot of baggage. And I guess in an age of like DIY spirituality where people are kind of leaving like the historical faith traditions and institutional religion and going off and doing their own thing. There's something really refreshing about someone who's just wanting to name that you're part of this you're you're mm. part of this movement you're part of this belief system and i really i just really appreciated that and, and oh, found that you. really refreshing oh thank yeah. you that's very sweet so you you say in that bio too that you write devotional music less sunday morning worship music and more monday morning prayer music so tell us a little bit about that that distinction yeah so um practically you know, it was really kind of a practical distinction first. Um, when you say Christian music, that has a lot of connotations for people. 
when you say worship mm-hmm. music, that has a lot of connotations for people. Contemporary Christian music, these are like genres that people are familiar with and maybe have either, a, you know, an aversion to or like a, a wild preference towards and they have certain expectations coming towards it. And I, um, I've long lamented the fact that if you are a songwriter who writes about God and your faith and your own process of trying to know and love and be loved by Jesus, that there's so many, if you say that up front, then people don't approach it the way they might approach another singer songwriter. So if mm-hmm. I was just John Guerra, singer songwriter, then people would approach it like, I wonder what the genre is going to be. I wonder what yeah. the content is going to be. But when you say you're a Christian music singer songwriter, it's suddenly there's all, all this, um, there's all th- these mediating uh, descriptors. And hmm. I wanted something that, that was a little bit more mysterious um, or at hmm. least felt both true to what I did and also a little bit like, but it's not these other things without having to say that. Um, yeah. And also wanted, you know, wanted something that kind of um, uh, felt a little bit more psalmish, you know, mm. like Walter Brueggemann says, the Psalms are just a collection of Godward humanity. And really at the end of the day, that's kind of what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm trying to be, um, I'm just trying to be faithful with this wild gift that I have of music and songwriting. The fact that I get to do it with my free time and, um, and to me, the most honest and, and most faithful that I can be with it is just to kind of direct whatever's happening inside of me to God and maybe create like a two-way conversation and, you know, write and compose while I'm talking, you know, while we're kind of having this two-way conversation and devotional music felt like, okay, this is, um, this seems like a term I can, I can live with, um, and the little byline is sort of like less Sunday morning worship, more Monday morning prayer. Mm. And by that, I just mean it's it's not meant to be, you know, congregational and it's not meant to yeah. be. Um, I'm kind of leaving room for just a little bit of my um, what I, you know, I it's quirky in the context of maybe, you know, uh, Sunday morning or Christian music industry. It's it's very normal to me, you know, <laughs> but yeah. Maybe quirky in relation to these other things that, you know, I we get pinned against. So some of the cultural forces I think that we're up against as Christian creatives and like what's yeah. what's expected of a corporate worship song, I think is yeah. one of those things that we slowly chip away at maybe and yeah. constantly seeking um what what's what's the right space for these these songs and, and, yeah. and what can that be? Um yeah, I love that. Tell us, tell us about your most recent album. I believe it was released. Was it May of this yeah, year? May twelfth. Yeah. So it's still year. like a new little it baby album. It still feels album. very new. It's, totally. Yeah. Has it, how has the release process been for you? Like, has it felt well received and yeah, all that? I mean, yeah, I definitely. It definitely feels like there's an emotional exhale that happens, mm-hmm. like with anything. I'm sure yeah. you've experienced this, whether you're releasing music or your books. Um, but there's an emotional exhale. There's a bit of an existential crisis that sort of accompanies a release. Like, like, what am I doing with my life? You know, I know. Inevitably, thank you yeah. for saying that because yeah, like yesterday was a little bit of a rough day for me. Like, there was a lot of like tense 
you know, just like exchanges with my very sweet children. And I was doing mm. a lot of like hyper cleaning, like to mm. the point of obsessively tidying. And my husband was <laughs> like, what is going on with you? And I was like, it is the existential dread of releasing something you've poured your heart into out into the world and yeah. just wondering if it's going to resonate at I all know or wondering all. if it's true and wondering if it's good you know it's uh, hard and you don't want to be too angsty about it because you feel so privileged to do it right yeah but, right but it takes a lot of courage to just put yourself out yeah. there and to be vulnerable and to you know obviously all we take all our insecurities with us throughout our life and those get exacerbated in different seasons. And I think for creators, like you said, it's when we release something because I'm very mm -hmm. comfortable in my, in my space, you know, when I'm writing, I yep. it's like, I love it. And I would go through a million, um, you know, little, little mini kind of crucifixions of release to be able to do it, you know, cause yes. it's like oxygen for it's me. It's worth it. It's totally yeah. worth it. But, but it also, it, it, it feel, it can feel very hard um, but the release has been going well. I, we, we did like a four week tour where we did three, four days, mm. the Northeast and the West coast and Texas, the Midwest. And, um, those are very sweet. You know, my shows are not very big, but they're very, mm. um, the people that come are, they know the music. It's wild that they, you know, sometimes they sing along and just to be able to see face to face, the people that the music is affecting and reaching is really cool is really, really encouraging. Um, yeah. And, but, it, you know, that's also kind of an emotional exhale, right? The performance, the travel, yeah. the tour. So we just finished, actually, we got back yesterday from the last kind of run, uh, of our little ordinary ways tour. So feeling really good yeah. feeling at this point, feeling good. like we kind of achieved something. Um, yes. Yeah. We just tried some new things and yeah, feeling good about it. Yeah, we gave the album wings and it's flying out exactly into right. people's into people's ears and it's good. It's a good feeling. I, you know, as much as I want to just talk for hours with you about your songwriting process and how you do, you know, this this intersecting work between theology and art and music and all that. What I really want to talk to you about is like, what was this internal work that was happening in you that inspired the writing of ordinary ways. Tell me about mm. the spiritual journey that got you to the place where these are the words that emerged as you were writing. Oh, I, I love that question so much. So it starts um, March 1st, 2020. My wife and I and our four-month-old Winslow moved from Chicago, Illinois to Austin, Texas. And we moved- You moved two weeks before the world shut down. Is that what it, you're saying? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Oh, oh. <laughs> and- we moved across the country away from any family. We moved, uh, yeah, with a four month old. And Ooh. I, yeah, it was, we all had a wild few years. You know, we've all, everyone's yeah. got their own, really, everyone's got lived a novel and, and then some, um, the past few years. Mm -hmm. But for us, the contours of the struggle was, um, life sort of suddenly got very, very, very ordinary. And um, mm. we moved down here and we only knew a couple of people that mercifully lived on our block. We moved onto the blocks. We were like, we want to do community. You know, we want to try to just be, weave our lives together a little bit more. And so, um, you know, when the world shut down, we, we started this kind of experiment of doing morning and evening prayer six days a week mm. with our neighbor. 
And, um, and then the world shut down and it was like, oh, this is kind of the perfect little incubator for this kind of community prayer experiment. And then we started doing these, um, like Friday night dinners. Um, we moved down to work on a movie for this director, Terrence Malick. He's working on this film Mm -hmm. and, uh, we were kind of the only, married couple with a kid that were working on the film so we kind of made these dinners for people that were kind of working on the movie um yeah. on friday nights and you know we have kind of a big backyard here in austin and so we just kind of would grill out burgers and then um yeah. talk about the week and uh maybe pray maybe not you know just it, it became this sort of rhythm of normalcy in an otherwise very unnormal time <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was kind of the broader and then more, I guess the, the more intimate story is, you know, having our daughter really changed our self-conceptions of <laughs> who we were as people, you know, in, in all mm-hmm. the best ways. I, you know, I've been saying that like love kind of cracked me wide open and I, mm-hmm. I haven't really been put to back, back together yet. Like I'm trying yeah. to figure out, you know, who, who I am again and my wife is too and you know it that these are very dramatic ways of talk but but it really felt like a rending and like a um you know uh just everything was sort of um i think when a when it when a when an overwhelming love comes into your life um you do have to kind of reevaluate everything in light of that and that's really Mm -hmm. what my my daughter was and has been and just um parenting has been in fatherhood. So I was, you know, having to negotiate. Um, okay. Well, I had an idea of who I was as a songwriter, as a husband, as a, even who I was in, in relation to God before this role, before this vocation of being a father. But now I, um, now that kind of has to change because I used to relate to God by studying, you know, and by Hmm. reading. And now my days are not I don't have time for that during the day, you know? So, so what do I do? Is yeah. God absent? Am I, do I have no other way to relate to him? Um, do I, uh, my songwriting, I would just, I was very much reliant on these long stretches of open, again, quiet time. And those times are just non-existent anymore. <laughs> no you know? more, no, no more. more. <laughs> and so what do we do? You know, and even Valerie yeah. and I, we, we are, we met in college playing music together. So our, yeah, a lot of our collaboration are really our whole life is a collaboration. I mean, every marriage is a collaboration, but especially creatively. But now when we have our daughter and we don't have any um, childcare, we don't have any family around like, okay, this collaboration, we need to kind of reimagine what this creative collaboration is and change our expectations. Um, So that's kind of what was happening in me when I started writing these songs. Um, I realized the only quiet time I could get was between the hours of like, three and 4 a.m. and 6.30 when our daughter would wake up. So mm-hmm. I started kind of militantly waking up and trying mm-hmm. to work on music and trying to write and trying to um, trying to just make sense of kind of life. And uh, so the record is kind of quiet because I sort of had to be quiet. Like I, yeah. you know, everybody was sleeping. And um, yep. <laughs> so then I shifted to writing books. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's a like, lot quieter process. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Maybe I should think about that. 
Um, yeah, my girls don't really love the sound, particularly of the banjo, and so there's a lot of like shushing that happens. I'm like, I, I've never been shushed by anyone while trying to write music. So totally, maybe some terrible bit. gigs early on. It's like this is like a terrible gig, like being shushed <laughs> by my my audience here. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I, it's yeah. There's something about um, caregiving, you know, that yeah. interrupts your kind of uh grandiose <laughs> plans and your best laid plans for how you're going to put this amazing thing out into the world and all of a sudden you get humbled you know on on an hourly basis by someone who just needs your attention and yeah. shifting the mindset to like this this diaper change this right. you know this uh you know rocking to sleep is the most important thing I might do all day, you know, yes, instead right. of the goals that that you had for your creative life, for your ministry life. Right, um, right, that, right. That right. takes a lot of mental discipline, I think, to shift. It um, does. Like but, but really, that is like what I discovered and what, what we're still discovering is that is the work of, um, I mean, that that's where holiness kind of gets worked, it gets worked out, right? I think yeah. some of these, especially for those of us who've grown up in the church and around some of this language since we were young, we have ideas of what purity, holiness, what what these things are. Um, yeah. yeah, And they're somewhat divorced from the mundane, but it's very yeah. mundane. You know, holiness is, is, if it's not mundane, it's not holiness. And, yeah. um, and really just understanding that, yeah, spiritual practice and spiritual attentiveness um, really is is for these moments of ordinary mundane life. Yeah, yeah. It's so the the this podcast is really meant to be just conversations about some of the topics that I cover in my book, Holy Unhappiness. And this this chapter that we're kind of circling around the the, the topic for the chapter is this idea of calling. Mm. And I mean, I think you and I are probably close to the same age. Grew up kind of. Christian subculture, all of that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you got this message, um, you know, this idea that if you just can find your calling, right. um, or you got to be at the center of God's will, then God has this amazing plan for your life. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be able to do all these, you know, kind of do these great things for God. I think that's yeah. what's kind of implicit in that conversation is that you are supposed to do important things for God. You're supposed to be important. Right. And, um, Andy Crouch kind of, I've heard him refer to this as impact fetish, which is like, I feel like we have this, this obsession with having this huge impact. And, and, you know, I think that there's, again, there's kind of nothing like caregiving um, mm. a small human that will kind of interrupt some of those, those, those big plans maybe that yeah. you have for your life. And, but in, in such an important way, because I've never noticed beauty like I have since mm. I became a parent, the, yes. the small details in, in the beauty in life. So I don't know, where, where are you now seeing God in some of these ordinary, hidden, unseen moments? Yeah, I, I love the phrase impact fetish so much. I think it, it just perfectly sums up, um, an error, you know, an, an error in expectations, an error in um, maybe even how we how we see God, how we understand God. Um, yeah. I have a line in the first song of my record, Ordinary Ways, called The Lord Will Provide, 
And the line is, um, the ways of God are higher, the ways of God are small. Um, the mm. days of men amount to nothing at all. And that is sort of a, it's one of, the, I, I'd say if there's a, th- there's probably two thesis on the record, two thesis lines, and that's definitely one of them, is that um, mm. God is so much smaller than we are, you know, and that's something that I found when my daughter was born, just the, the, uh, suddenly the, um, the incarnation took on a much smaller impact. You know, I, mm. I conceived of the incarnation as this like, yeah, God became a person and he's, you know, Jesus is then, he relates to us in our weakness, in our, in our, you know, almost like the good Friday mentality yeah. of the incarnation. But to, to think that first God was made vulnerable and made small is just such a yeah. wild, it was just such a visceral truth to me in this moment. Like there's such a fragile, there's a fragility to a, to an infant. Hmm. And, um, hmm. but also that God would woo us through vulnerability and through infancy yeah. is so profoundly beautiful to me. Right. And, um, you know, I think I, I was just so I, at times upset. Like why, why haven't we talked about that? Like, this is everything, you know? Yeah. And this is yeah. so, there's such a you know, common, it's such a common experience that we have, you know, to say that God is, small that god is god is available in these hidden places like that's something anybody no matter their race gender socioeconomic status it's like this is something that we have available to us but instead we talk about god like like you know zeus or something like which is yeah there's parts of god that are grand and beautiful but i think the the greatness in in is like the way i would talk about the greatness of a of a child you know of an of an impact like the greatness of my daughter's wonder the greatness of mm. how uh, there was a completely uncoercive mercy in this infant that was suddenly in my life that completely was requiring everything of me and I was willingly giving it. I mean, that's, yeah. H- how is, how, I don't, maybe it was just, and, and certainly I'm willing to take all the bl- <clears throat> blame, but I've, I never heard God really spoken about in these kind of tender ways or, um, yeah. So I, yeah, now I, I'm really on the lookout for, um, for just that, that small, uh, infant, like, um, theophany, I guess, you know, the little, little mini theophanies that I think are available to us. Um, if, if we, if we're able to, to notice them interesting because it's it's almost like jesus doesn't even want to be spoken of in that way that whole like messianic secret motif where he's saying like Mm. don't don't tell anyone Mm. the miracles i've done just be with me in these Mm. intimate spaces of sharing a meal and talking about god and walking along the road and and surrounded by children you know like surrounded Mm. by fishermen like he wanted yeah the smallness the smallness was something even he gravitated towards it only only feels like it's it's with reluctance yeah. that he um reveals the the grandeur of his nature um mm. and and i think that tender choice on his part is the thing that keeps me coming back to the story of jesus keeps me coming back to this idea that jesus was the incarnate god is because mm. i'm i just think that's so unusual in the you know 
pantheon of other religions and religious mm-hmm. stories and meta narratives, I think that 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 humble guard garb that is so often worn by our God is so compelling. Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of which, your song Nazareth is one of my my favorites on the album. Tell us a little mm. bit about that song and how that that song came to be. Yeah. So, um, well, actually, let me let me get. I need to get a little painting for you. One second. Oh, please do. Okay. Ooh. So this is an icon painted by this amazing icon writer named Ivanka Demchuk. And it's called okay. a, a Hidden Life in Nazareth. And it's basically, <gasps> um, it's the Holy Family and it's baby Jesus kind of running to Mary from Joseph. And in the background, you've got clothes that are just drying. You've mm. got a workbench that is mid mid work that's just totally abandoned to play with this child. Wow. And then underneath is this is kind of her embodiment of the deep of this sort of this darkness that is going to overtake Christ through the course of his life. So this is kind of yeah. one of several. And um honestly that that song was oh, kind of inspired beautiful. by that icon and she she's a Ukrainian actually. So we were kind of corresponding mm. and right um, as Russia was invading, we were kind mm. of in correspondence. So it was kind of wild also to kind of, um, yeah, hear and be kind of in in conversation with her and her story. And like, I, I was just like, this is amazing. This is everything. You know, this is what I want to do with my songs. Like, what you know, what's your process with blah, blah, blah. And, um, but basically with the idea, the, the song is like, Nazareth is kind of a stand-in for our, our hearts and our own mm. mundane world, mundane lives. And um, yeah. it's just sort of this question like, God, do you still incarnate in small ways? Yeah. Sometimes I, I don't, I don't feel that, you know, I don't sense that. It's like, I know yeah. you did that once and I, and I love that you did that once, but will you do that again? Like here in my heart, mm. in my house, in my, um, in my loneliness, in my barren wilderness, um, yeah. So that's kind of, um, yeah. And it, Nazareth, sort of in the in the record, sort of is the stand-in for that kind of uh, mundane, ordinary, everyday landscape. Yeah. What was the question they asked? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, love, I mean, I ask myself that question every day. <laughs> yeah. In, in the yeah. sense that, what's is is this important enough? Is what I'm doing important enough? Is this um, making it a big enough impact? Should I be doing more? Should I be being more? And right. Um, and it's you know you can swirl down deeper into human nature and realize this isn't really this isn't really me wanting to see Christ glorified. Mm. This is more about my own shame and my own desire yeah. to be seen or my own desire to feel like my life matters. You know. Right. Um, and then we. We kind of disguise it. We have a really clever way of disguising it. I think sometimes, yeah, within our within our Christian circles, and you know, it's never enough. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> you never get to the bottom of that question when you until you find your rest. I think in yeah. Christ and who He's and named you to be. And it, you know, that that finding that rest in Christ and who He's. I mean, that is a, that's such a slow, long process, and it's like. Could be two steps forward, one step back or something. But, you know, yeah, I think in the parable of the talents, 
we want to be, we always want to be the people who like have a lot of talents that then multiply a lot. Like, God, yeah. you know, I will be a faithful Christian with success. Like, trust me with that. Yeah. Like, I'll be faithful, you know, but it's yeah. really, yeah. well, many of us are, are probably just these one talent people and um, the temptation to bury. It's, it's so, I understand it. I totally get it because it's so hard to feel like you're, mm-hmm. you've got something so small and so precious and it just, sometimes it feels like it, it doesn't amount to much at all, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but the degree to which I think we can understand that it is so precious to God, like what we are making and what we're doing and who we are and what we are contributing is so, so precious to God is like a, and this is when I think about my, again, my daughter is such a wonderful stand-in for this kind of relationship with God because I can give something to her and I can make something for her and her enthusiasm far outweighs the thing that I'm yeah. giving to her, you know? And yeah. Yeah. it's such a beautiful, for me, It's it really is such a beautiful spiritual it's emblematic of, I think it's a spiritual relationship. That's just like, yeah, man, I, God is really, really cherishes our small, you know, not, not very fruitful now work. Um, Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, I don't know if you've heard of the book, a gift from the sea or gift from the sea by Anne Morrow Lindbergh. It's a, it's, she writes about motherhood basically. And there's this no, line in there where she says, um, she, she writes, you know, the, the rhythms and requirements of motherhood run counter to the artistic life, to the reflective life and to the spiritual life. And I, I actually put that in my chapter mm. about parenthood and, you know, talked about how hard it is sometimes to be an artist and a parent. And my friend Taylor read it for me before I sent it to my publisher and she was working through some of the content with me. She really challenged me. And she mm. said, this isn't true. <laughs> she mm. said that like, like the, the, the life of caregiving is the monastic life. It's, it's yes. a self-imposed limit for the glory of God. Yes. And think of the wonder that you've experienced by seeing the world through the eyes of a child. Like, yes, you yes. have to rethink it. Yes, it can be challenging. Right. Um, but, but this is the life of faith. This is the yeah. spiritual reflective life. Amen. To love yep. and to pour out like this, and I was like, "Oh, Taylor, yes." <laughs> I had to rewrite the whole chapter, John. Totally, like, totally. The book That's was so due true. in a week. It was a disaster. <laughs> but, um, so, I just a couple more questions before we close. What, what, what is calling to you now? What do you think of that word "calling," and what does it mean for you now? I'm a little scared of that word. I don't, I don't know. I was, I used to be so certain and made such um, strong and outlandish pronouncements about my calling quote unquote mm-hmm. i think about yeah. vocation a little bit more now i mm-hmm. like to say that i'm bivocational i am a parent and i'm a songwriter um and it's life is kind of negotiating between those two vocations um mm-hmm. i think uh i feel that kind of kind of we've been talking about this over and over but really the anytime i sort of have illusions of grandeur or some some large thing i i i'm just suspicious that that is god and and mm. i'm a little bit more like well that's probably um you know i've just released this songwriting course like a week ago and i'm thinking about you know wanting to create a little cohort of songwriters that want to do kind of this devotional songwriting thing in community yeah. And, you know, I was talking to some friends 
and very sweetly they're like, oh man, this could be like this big thing, blah, blah, blah. And I, I'm, I'm very just suspicious and kind of uninterested in that. Like I really am a little yeah. bit more interested in like really just a few people over a long period of time trying to kind of inspire each other and help each other along the path. And, um, and I think maybe calling is a little easier to identify in hindsight than it is mm. in, in the present moment. But, but I do think about vocation and think about, well, what's, what's just the next, what's the thing, what's the next thing that feels right? Like, yes, just yeah. worry about that. What's just the next step? Yeah. How do you think like about maybe it? Not, not till we get to the very end. I kind of wonder, like, when you look back on kind of the body of work or the labor that you yeah. put your hand to over the course of however many years you live, maybe that's only when you kind of know what it yeah. was. Because I think all you, I mean, all you can do is be faithful in the moment to what you've been stewarded with. You know, if it's a, yeah. whether yeah. that's a gift or a person or a relationship or a church or a community, I think the only thing you can do is just be faithful to that in what seems like the most faithful thing to do in that next moment. I, yeah, this like got to decide what job I'm going to get. I got to decide what right. career I'm going to have. And that's called, like, that's kind of a, that's a privileged 21st century American problem. Like, right. Right. This, this, this decision fatigue we have because we have so much autonomy and agency over our careers. And I mean, that's yeah. new. That's brand yep. new in the history of the world. So I try to remember that when I get really nervous about like, am I making the right, like, is this the next right career move? Or is this, should I go to grad school? Should I not? What if God doesn't want me to go to grad school? Um, you know, it's like, right. <laughs> those are kind of silly questions, I think, in the long run. Those will be the mm. questions we say were kind of silly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. At least I hope. But I the, okay, my last question, I'm asking every, every guest this is like, as you have grown in your walk with, with Christ and um, on your journey of faith, how is your conception or perception of happiness changed mm, or mm -hmm. dare I say evolved. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I, I think being, you know, being an Enneagram four, I've never, I've always been suspicious of the word happiness. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think I've definitely become less, um, it's, I've actually become less suspicious of just mundane happiness. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was never, for a bunch of reasons, um, was never really thought that the point of life was to be happy or um, I always even maybe found some self-righteous solace in being kind of the teenage kid being like, life isn't about happiness. You suburban comfortable people you know what, whatever that was like i was that kid who was just very um classic songwriter growing yeah, up as, as exactly a i think very yeah. angsty but i think frankly i think my um as i've kind of settled down and i think hopefully become a little bit more porous to the world and to the simple pleasures and simple joys um certainly that parenting have afforded, but I think just age also affords you kind of a little bit mm -hmm. more of a mm -hmm. slower rhythm. You, you understand life is more of a marathon than a sprint. Um, I think I'm a little bit more, uh, open to just giving myself to the very like easy pleasures. Like there's nothing like just kind of hanging with my family on a Saturday morning. Like I'm, I'm fully yeah. happy just, you know, 
John Updike has that month, a month of Saturdays set of short stories. And I, I just, I mean, that if I could have a month of Saturdays with my family, like that is, that is bliss. That's happiness. Yes. You know? Yeah. And it's not yeah. that there's not like, we're not fighting. We're not negotiating with a toddler, you know, the, all, the whole nine yards. But um, I think for me, just being open and, and not always just being bracing myself. I think when we've experienced deep pain and suffering and loss mm-hmm. and have had to grieve, we kind of become suspicious of even simple pleasures. And mm-hmm. I think learning to trust um, Christ has uh, shown itself in my life by, by just letting myself enjoy kind of simple simple things with my family in small ways, you know, yeah. and trusting that, okay, I don't, I don't need to be bracing myself. Um, yes. So the spiritual discipline of awe and delight. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It's not, it's not always easy to trust it and to allow yeah. yourself to just be immersed in it. Um, yeah, it is a good word and a good word to end on. So thank you so much for your time. If you ever decide oh, you pleasure. want to come play a show in the mountains of Western North Carolina, we can find you a barn to play in. Heck yeah. It'll be, it'll be great. That'd be amazing. Oh, I would yeah, love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for the conversation. Thanks for being here with me today. Oh, my pleasure, Amanda. It's so great to connect. Wendell Berry once said, make a home Help to make a community. Be loyal to what you have made. I write this in my book about calling. Calling, it seems, is whatever is in front of you. It is an invitation to be present. It summons us to love, to hope, to be at peace. It is a challenge to simply be, rather than to be significant. A calling is not to be discerned, but to be lived. We do hard things, even bold things, but not because we want to be important, not because we need to be the protagonist of some grand narrative. We do these things because they are necessary, because they are the right thing to do. We do them because of love. Thank you for joining us.